Um, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. As you know, we are in a uh, series on the Gospel of Luke, and we have arrived at uh, Luke chapter 13, verses uh, 22 to 30 is what we, will be, what we will be covering this evening. So let me read that to you. And that passage reads, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's play. pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you have made your word so plain to us. Thank you that um, we get to gather in safety and in peace and examine your word together as your body. And I, as I read this word uh, and examine this word and expound this word today, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would move, uh, that you would convict where conviction is needed, that you would comfort where comfort is needed. If there are those among us uh, this evening who do not belong to you, I pray that you would win their hearts this evening, Lord. Um, and I pray your word would go out with power. If I say anything that's not of you, I pray that it would um, be forgotten. And the things that I proclaim that are your profound truth, I pray that they would ring in the ears, in the hearts, and in the minds of all who hear. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, well, good evening. My name is Raymond. As most of you know, I'm one of the preachers here at Shorebreak. And uh, again, it's always an honor and a privilege to stand before you, even though I'm not worthy. Um, but, um, well, actually, I should say I am worthy, but only because God has made me worthy, not because of any merit of my own. And that's a big uh, theme this evening. But as I meditated on this passage, um, it reminded me of situations in which, you know, I've made friends with people, uh, or at least I thought I did. And uh, I've met people, I've, I've developed a pretty good rapport with them, and I thought we were good friends, um, only to find out maybe um, after the fact that that person had had uh, some sort of celebratory gathering, such as a, a promotion or a birthday party or a housewarming celebration, and I wasn't invited. Um, before you feel sorry for me, however, you should know that I am very much an introvert, and so really I didn't want to go to that party anyway. Uh, but I did want the validation of having been invited to that party. So if there are any among you who, who don't like me, but you are having some sort of 
celebratory gathering and you feel this Christian inclination to invite me, you should do the godly thing and, and invite me knowing that I probably won't come. <laughs> so that way, though, I can feel good about having been invited and you could feel good about having done the right thing and invited me, but neither one of us have to actually put up with the scenario. Um, uh, I'm sort of joking, but I'm sort of serious. <laughs> Uh, but this passage also brings to mind situations where uh, at my place of employment there have been major meetings um, deciding the direction of the organization or some major policy change, and I only found out after the fact that that meeting had taken place and I wasn't invited when I thought I had earned the right to be a part of that major decision-making process. So uh, this passage is bringing out all sorts of prideful tendencies in me that uh, the Lord has been convicting. Um, but if I'm being reasonable, I have to acknowledge that in the case of a social gathering, people can invite and celebrate with whoever they want to celebrate with as their guests. And in the case of a workplace meeting, the manager, supervisor, or employer can uh, include whoever he or she believes is the most appropriate to be included in that decision-making process. Um, that's their call it doesn't really matter whose feelings get hurt. Likewise, it doesn't matter what criteria we think Jesus ought to use to determine who will spend eternity in his kingdom, that is his decision. No amounts of complaining or petitioning will make a difference regarding who Jesus decides or really has already decided to include in his kingdom. And that's what uh, we're going to talk about today in today's text. Now, in explaining the fact that a limited number of people will be part of God's eternal kingdom, Jesus tells a parable. And it's not explicitly stated here, but uh, Jesus uses a parable that's really about a great banquet, and he uses that uh, analogy elsewhere in Luke's gospel and throughout uh, the synoptic gospels. And in this uh, parable, uh, the banquet is symbolic of God's kingdom, and the guest list represents citizenship in that kingdom. Uh, now, this passage begins with someone asking a question about salvation, obviously. And uh, if this man had been following Jesus at the time he gave the discourse we discussed last week, uh, he might have thought that potentially most people would be saved. Jesus did, after all, paint a very hopeful picture about the kingdom of God being like a voluminous tree or a plump uh, loaf of bread. Uh, Jesus was saying that the kingdom of God is ever-expanding, but the fact that God's kingdom is growing doesn't mean that most people throughout history will be participants in that kingdom. Uh, but why will some be participants and others left out? Um, and I'm going to answer that question uh, in, a, in an unconventional way. Uh, as you know, mostly when we gather, we go through a text from start to finish, but I thought in this case it would be most helpful if we sort of start at verse 30 and work our way back to verse 22. Uh, and so hopefully that will make as much sense to you as it made in my mind. But let's, let's look there at verse 30. It says, uh, Jesus speaking about the banquet of uh, the kingdom of God, Behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So what does that actually mean? Uh, Jesus is saying 
that some people who are the least morally excellent by conventional human standards will be the first to be commended and honored when God inaugurates the final form of his earthly kingdom and some of the people who are most morally excellent by conventional human logic will be the last to be honored in the kingdom. Um, there are several scriptures uh, in which Jesus expresses this idea of the last being first and the first being last. And I think in this instance, uh, the, the instance that most clarifies what Jesus is saying here is found in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. And in that passage, Jesus tells another parable about an entrepreneur who hires uh, laborers for his vineyard. At the end of the workday, uh, the vineyard owner not only pays those who worked uh, the least the same amount as those who worked the most, but he also uh, paid those who worked the least first of all, and then he paid those who worked the most last. This seems to be God's way of dispelling the notion that personal merit factors into why some people obtain citizenship in his kingdom and others are excluded. Um, now, uh, if Jesus thought the way I thought, he would not have told such a parable because he would have been concerned about uh, quenching or extinguishing the zeal that people have uh, for serving God uh, with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. But Jesus, of course, is the master communicator, and he is always mindful of what his audience needs to hear at any given moment. Uh, there are plenty of occasions when Jesus taught and urged his disciples to devote their time and energy to God, uh, but he didn't ever want them to, to believe that their service to God would make them more loved by God uh, or more accepted by God even though it was clear uh, that our service to God, the people, uh, the people of God serving God, will be commended. Um, it would have been obvious, though, to Jesus' original hearers of this passage that people are not invited to the metaphoric banquet uh, based on merit. And I say that for, for multiple reasons. First of all, verse 29 uh, seems to be Jesus quoting Psalm 107. And that's where Jesus says, uh, people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Um, in Jesus' era, it was a, a rabbinic form of exposition to quote part of a verse when an entire passage is under consideration. And Psalm 107 is a community hymn written uh, for the people of Judah when God punished their rebellion by allowing them to be taken into exile by Babylon. Uh, that's part of modern-day Iraq, and that happened in the 6th century B.C. Uh, this is a hymn praising God that his presence remains with his people despite their unfaithfulness. This psalm also looks forward to a future deliverance from oppression and also to redemption of people from far away. This psalm also talks about the unworthiness of those welcomed by God. Verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 107 read, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, who he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east 
and from the west. That's the part Jesus was alluding to. From the north and from the south. Uh, by the way, the lands referenced in verse 3 is figuratively speaking of people from foreign lands, i.e. non-Jews, who will ultimately be saved as well. Skipping down to verses 10 through 16, we read regarding people who will be gathered to God in the final form of his kingdom. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their heads down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Jesus' quotation of the psalm is a clear indication that those who will participate in the great banquet are invited because of grace and not merit. Furthermore, in verse 28, Jesus says, You will, quote, see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. Uh, these three men are considered, of course, to be the patriarchs of Judaism. Uh, these are the men whose faith was held out as paradigmatic for everyone else. Have these men obtained an irrevocable invitation to God's banquet because of their merit? That's the question. To answer that question, let's just briefly review who these men were. Genesis 25 tells us that Jacob extorted the inheritance of his older brother Esau, Genesis 29 tells us that Jacob neglected his wife Leah, which explicitly is stated as having displeased the Lord. Genesis 30 portrays Jacob as stealing from his father-in-law by deception. Joshua 24 explains that Abraham was an idolater prior to being called by God. And Isaac, of course, created conflict in his family by loving one of his sons more than another, and, of course, that was a pattern of behavior that was repeated by his most more unloved son, Jacob, when he loved his own son, Joseph, more than the others. So, all of us in this room, of course, have lied, neglected people we were meant to care for, been idolaters, or all of the above. Really, and all of the above, and more, not or. And most people in this world would admit to being guilty of the same sins. Yet they consider these acts of rebellion against Almighty God to be minor blemishes on their otherwise pristine biographies. Most people believe that if their lives are generally characterized by exemplary behavior, they will have earned the right to eternal fellowship with God. And this attitude even exists within the church. And I have bad news for you. But if you believe that the church is becoming increasingly less orthodox, you might be surprised to learn that 20 years ago, most of those who would self-identify as born-again Christians said that people can be reconciled to God and spend eternity with God in heaven even if they don't worship Jesus. That's according to a poll by the Barna Research Group um, in about 2003. Contrary to what most believe, all of us would be damned if our own 
merit uh, and worthiness had anything to do with whether we will be welcomed by God when he gathers together his people from every era of human history. Um, in fact, God wouldn't have anyone to welcome if our merit had anything to do with it. Yet all of us can be partakers of God's heavenly banquet, but the question is, how and why? Uh, to answer that, we have to see why some people will be left out, and Jesus answers that. Um, verse 27 says that those excluded will be told by the master of the house who represents Jesus, quote, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Uh, the reason why some will be left out of this great banquet is that Jesus will not have known him, known them, and that is to say he will not have had a friendship with them. He might have had a casual or transient connection with these people, but not friendship. A notice in verse 26 of this parable, those who hopelessly seek to gain access to the banquet will say, quote, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. The master of the house doesn't correct them on this point, but he doesn't know who they are in spite of his previous interaction with them. Um, this might be uh, kind of analogous to when you go to a wedding, for example, and you might greet or, uh, um, what's the word? You might greet or you might uh, very briefly interact with friends of the couple that you've never met or family members of the couple that you've never met, uh, but that doesn't constitute an intimate relationship or connection with those people. And so you wouldn't get offended if those people didn't invite you to their future gatherings because you know, you know you're know, you not some of their close companions. In fact, you might think it's a bit odd if they did invite you to those major gatherings of theirs. Um, yet astonishingly, there are people in the world who believe that they will spend eternity in the household of God on the basis of some casual connection to Jesus. And this is different from the group uh, of those who believe that their do-good lifestyles will gain them favor with God. Uh, this is a group of people who understand the need for friendship with Jesus, but they have a deficient um, definition of what that friendship entails. The reality is that even among people who have a fairly orthodox confession of faith, there will be those bands from the great banquet of our Lord. There are those um, who would say that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, for example, but in practice they worship and serve themselves or other idols more than Christ. Um, these people think that uh, because they occasionally give money to the church or wear a cross around their necks or have a Jesus tattoo, that means that they are carrying out a friendship with Jesus. They maybe consider Jesus to be their, their homeboy. But the banquet isn't for people who merely signify friendship with Jesus in some sort of superficial way. The banquet is for his genuine companions, and that true friendship is characterized by love for him, loyalty to him, and submission to him. And whether we're speaking metaphorically or literally, not everyone who has eaten at the same table with the Lord has a relationship with him. Now, we see this uh, literally demonstrated throughout Luke's gospel. Jesus literally ate 
and drink in the presence of people who were his absolute enemies. Luke 7, 36 says, quote, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Luke eleven thirty seven says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. Luke uh, 14.1 says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Each of these events ended very poorly for those Pharisees, by the way. Uh, this also connects back to the issue of merit. As far as human merit is concerned, no one outdid the Pharisees. Yet because most of them didn't know Jesus as a friend, and in fact they hated him, they will be excluded from that great banquet. So the question is, what, what about us? Are we trusting in our own merit and expecting God to accept us on the basis of our own achievements? Or perhaps we think that a casual acquaintance with Jesus is all that's required. And of course, I always say this, but most of us are arrogant because we think that as long as someone is at least as godly, as least as righteous as I am, they will enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe someone uh, a little bit worse than I am can get into the kingdom of heaven. And of course, someone better than I am can enter the kingdom of heaven and be included in that great banquet. But as long as someone is at least as godly, at least as righteous, at least as good as I am, they will surely enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we make ourselves the standard of excellence that other people can either exceed or fall short of. Uh, but none of our righteous acts will accomplish anything for us eternally apart from a relationship with Christ. And surely we had better learn this soon rather than later, because by the time the last of Christ's guests have arrived at this banquet, he will shut the door. And nobody will be able to connive or manipulate their way into the dining hall. Verse 25 says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. The closing of the door is symbolic of the final pronouncement of damnation upon those who die without having entered into a friendship with Jesus. Um, when that happens, the teachings of many seminaries and many theologians will be soundly discredited. There are some people who distort grace even while acknowledging that one is not brought into fellowship with God because of personal accomplishments or because of a casual relationship. Uh, these are the branches of Christianity uh, that preach that people can be reconciled to God post-mortem. Uh, in fact, there are uh, movements within Christianity that preach that inevitably all people will be reconciled with God, even if that doesn't happen until after they are resurrected. For example, there's a gentleman named uh, John Lasitra, and he is an ordained uh, minister with what is called the Christian Universalist uh, Association. And he has uh, served as a board of directors member 
in that capacity for that branch uh, since 2012. And uh, listen to what he wrote. Quote, God's pursuit of us doesn't end when we have taken our last breath in this world. Christians down through the ages have always believed that the prayers for the dead were efficacious. His grace is still offered to us when we have passed from this world to the next and is indeed irresistible. So he's distorting this doctrine of irresistible grace to suggest that all people will ultimately be saved because of God's irresistible grace. But this verse 25 of Luke 13, in any logical, intellectually honest way, leave any room whatsoever for the idea of reconciliation to God post-mortem. So we should do ourselves a favor and seek to confirm our place at the banquet today because there might not be a tomorrow for us. And that's what verse 24 is talking about when Jesus says, quote, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The kind of striving that Jesus is talking about here is not a striving that happens throughout one's life. Um, it's, a, it's not a striving for merit. It's a striving for friendship with Jesus. It's a striving against the pride that keeps us from being friends with Jesus in any sort of a true sense. This striving ends the moment one's relationship status with Jesus is changed from enemies to friends. And those are the only two statuses there are. If you're here uh, this evening and you've not secured your friendship with Jesus, I hope you have heard me say loudly and clearly that it's not something you can earn. It's something you can ask for. It's something that you can and should beg for, but you cannot earn it. And if you're wondering if you're too sinful for Jesus to ever want to be your friend, uh, the answer is no. It's impossible for someone to be too sinful to be Jesus' friend because then no one would be Jesus' friend because we'd all be too sinful. But we see from the literal feasting Jesus did during his first century ministry that he is receptive to everyone who humbly comes to him. And in fact, that was one of the more controversial aspects of Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. For example, in Luke 5, it says, quote, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In Luke 15, again, quote, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus doesn't make friends with people because they are already godly. He makes friends with people who are willing to be made godly. Those were the people who Jesus hung around with during his first century time frame. Uh, the reason why some people aren't his friends and aren't invited to the banquet is because they aren't willing to be made godly. They are not willing to comply with Jesus' lordship. And again, I'm even speaking of people who call themselves Christians and would say, Jesus is my Lord. Uh, I think this is precisely the type of person, actually, that Jesus is challenging in this passage. 
Notice that uh, the man starts his question in verse 23 by acknowledging Jesus as Lord. And he's talking directly to this man. In verse 25, Jesus says, those left outside the banquet will, will, quote, begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. So those outside of the banquet will be saying, Lord, as this man in verse 23 says, Lord. And so not everyone who calls Jesus the Lord actually relates to Jesus as the Lord. So the question that started this discourse was, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And the answer is relative to the overall number of people that have existed throughout human history. Yes, those who are saved will be few. And that's not because few people deserve salvation or merit salvation. It's because so few people agree to come to Jesus on Jesus' own terms. Jesus' friendship is for people who agree to let him help them. That's all lordship means, that you're agreeing to let Jesus reform your wicked ways. And until the day that we die, we will always have wicked ways that need to be reformed. There's never a point before the second coming of Christ where we will uh, transition from having been reformed to then stockpiling merit that makes us worthy of our place at the table of God's banquet. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that even though none of us are worthy in ourselves to have a seat at your table, you um, grant us an invitation to your table through repentance, through submitting to your lordship, um, through letting you help us, Lord. And so I pray that if people are counting on some false means of being a part of your great banquet, of being uh, having a seat at your table, whether it's their own righteousness and works, whether it's false forms of friendship, or whether it's cheap grace, I just pray that you would convict those ones here tonight, if they are here, and let them know that you offer a place at your table through that true friendship. And it's um, black and white. You don't make it difficult to understand or to obtain. You just ask for our humble submission and true repentance before you. And Lord, even for those who have uh, received a place at your table, who have come into relationship and friendship with you, I pray that um, if we even have taken that place at the table for granted, if we have taken your lordship for granted, um, I pray that you would convict us today, knowing that our place at the table was secured at a great cost to you. Um, you carried out acts of obedience in areas that we rebelled, and then you turned right around and suffered a severe punishment that we should have been um, granted so that we could have a place at that table. And so help us who have a place to recognize um, how costly that place was. Help us to overflow with gratitude towards you and recommit ourselves to your lordship. And um, I pray that if we're struggling in that area, you would help us to know that even in that, we cannot do ourselves, but only through your Holy Spirit. It has to be granted to you. Our, our very obedience has to be granted 
by you. And Lord, I just pray that um, we would walk out of this room um, grateful, ever grateful for what you've done for us, who you are to us. And out of a place of that gratitude, we would let our friends, our neighbors, co-workers who do not know you, uh, that they too can have a place at your great banquet table, Lord. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.